Thanks for joining us for today's sermon on the Brick Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Jared Callahan. I'm the lead pastor here at the Brick, and we're so excited that you're going to check out today's message. Our prayer is that each week the message inspires you, challenges you, and helps you connect to God, maybe in a brand new way. We also pray that you connect with us as a community, that it doesn't stop just with your connection with God, but it gives you an opportunity to connect with the people at the Brick Church. So don't hesitate to reach out. Let's jump into today's message. Today, uh, we are on week number, I don't even know what number we're on, week number something or other of Back to John. That's what we're on. We're back to John. If you're new with us, uh, we're taking a verse-by-verse look at the Gospel of John. And as we look through the Gospel of John, you don't have to be caught up with us. We'll catch you up to all the stuff we're doing. Um, but the, We're going to get some background, some history, some context. But really, ultimately, what we want to do is figure out what is calling us to apply to our lives. What are we supposed to do different based on what God is saying in these verses? That's the crux. And we're going to ask a question today before we even get started in, God, in John 6. And we're going to ask the question uh, that's going to come throughout today's message, and that is, are you following him or are you following what he provides? Are you following him being Jesus? Are you following him or are you following what he provides? Okay, there's a slight distinction and I will break down what that looks like. So in, in, in John chapter 6, um, we, we, we catch up to Jesus on the seaside and, and he's next to the Sea of Galilee and uh, multitudes of people start to show up. Um, and as they show up, just massive crowds of people, Jesus looks to one of his disciples, Philip, and he asks Philip, hey, uh, they look like they're going to be hungry. I don't know why Jesus knows that at this point. Like we, he can tell this is, this is going to be a good time. We're going to need to feed these people. And Philip's like, well, it would take, Philip's like, it, it would take a half a year's salary just to give them each a bite. It doesn't even make sense that we would try to feed him. It's kind of like an absurd question um, that, that he asked. And uh, Jesus is like, well, what do we have? I mean, we don't have a half a year's salary. And we don't have enough to feed this many people. Um, and he says, what do we have? And he says, well, there's a, a young guy here. Uh, New King James calls him young lad. I don't know if that sounds condescending to some of you. A young lad, all right? A young guy, a no-name dude that's a young buck who brought his lunch. Guess who didn't bring their lunch? Everybody else. This young guy brought his lunch. So good for him. He didn't get a name in scripture, but we know he was responsible enough to be like, I'm not going out to the Sea of Galilee for this long meeting without packing my lunch. This man was smart. Young guy shows up. Nobody else shows up with it. It's like, what do you got? And this kid offers his lunch for them to use. And so Jesus sets them all down in groups. And then by the time it's all said and done, feeds every single person, and then there are 12 baskets full left over. 12 baskets full of, of, of barley loaves left over. Pieces of the barley loaves left over. 12 baskets off of five loaves, two fishes. There's a multitude fed and they do the count. They sit them down in groups and they found it, finally count them. It says there's 5,000 men that were there that day. Almost all scholars would argue that they're not counting women and children. We don't know what number there was total that were fed, but everybody was fed and there were 5,000 men. So were there 10,000 there, 15,000? We don't know the total number we know there's 5,000 men there, and yet there are 12 baskets left over. Jesus shows up in power in this moment and does something really cool and shows, like, I bring the bread, right? I'm the one that can feed you. If you get hungry, I can make it work. No matter what you got, I can make it work. And it's this cool moment where you think the multitude would get it, and they start to get it. They start to see something, and it shows up in verse 14, uh, John chapter 6, verse 14. It says, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. All right, cool. 
They're getting it, right? Like you would think like the crowd gets it. You fed me, I get it, right? Listen, I get it. If you feed me for free, I'm gonna have a lot of respect for you. I'm gonna see you. I don't care if it's bread. I don't care if it's steak. You fed me for free. I already see something in you. And these people see a miracle done. And so they get it, right? It makes sense. You got free food. You showed up irresponsibly to the seaside without your lunch. And Jesus provided. That's a cool moment. And they start to click. They start to click with, oh, maybe he's the prophet. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting on, right? And you think that would be enough. You would think that that would be the moment when they see this. It's like, all right, cool. The rest of Israel is going to surround him. Um, but the issue is not always seeing who Jesus is, right? It's, it's not just about knowing that Jesus is who he says he is. It's not just about knowing that he's, he's something special. It's not just about knowing that he's a prophet, right? right? The original question is, are we following him or what he provides? It might be even more dangerous to know who he is and then still choose not to follow, right? It's not just about believing that Jesus is who he says he is. It's about whether or not you apply that to your life and live differently. Are you different because Jesus is who he says he is? Do you live differently? Do you, do you follow faithfully the God who you say is Jesus? Do you follow him or, or do you just believe? And, and what's scary, one of the things that's scary is that James tells us that even the demons believe and yet they tremble. It's not our belief that reflects whether or not we're in right standing with God. Because here's what they do. They're like, oh, you're the prophet. You're, you're the one. And yet here's their response to him in verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus recognized what this crowd was about to do was force him to be their king. All right, this is the prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the guy we were waiting on. This is what we wanted. This guy can feed us, right? If nothing else, maybe he's not good at defending us against other countries, but we're at least going to get fed, right? You know, he's a good cook. You know, he's going to provide. So let's just go ahead and make him king. And we're going to do it by force. And which is an interesting verse. How do you make somebody king by force? Like the, the idea of a king, like we could maybe force somebody to be president. We might could force somebody in a democratic sense to do things. But when you, when you're a king, you're in charge, right? Th this is not an era of time where as a king, I get to pick and choose who I follow. If you're my king, I don't have a choice. I could, I could be beheaded at any moment or be uh, crucified at the stake. I could, I could have any number of ways that they could kill me just because I disobeyed the king. So the odd statement of they are going to make him king by force is strange which means they really don't want him as king, right? You can't really make somebody be your king. You can't really make somebody be your master. Like, hey, you're gonna, you're gonna be my boss. You're gonna tell me what to do. No, no, I'm not. Like, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Well, yes, you are. You're absolutely gonna do it. Then, then I'm telling you I'm not gonna do it. And if I'm your boss and I tell you I'm not gonna do it, then I'm not your boss anymore. It's such a weird idea to try to force somebody to rule over you. It's like trying to force somebody to marry you. No, I do, no I'm not. I'm actually not gonna marry you. Uh, I, I don't have to marry you. This is my choice. I'm not gonna love you the way you wanna be loved. So absolutely not. And yet this is the crowd. They wanna make him king, which means they really don't want him to be king, right? If you force someone to be king, you actually wanna force somebody to do what you want them to do, say what you want them to say, and, and, and make them into whatever you want them to be rather than actually being your king. If you force somebody to be king, it doesn't really work. They're not your king. You want them to be really subject to you, but that's not how kingship works. That's not how we follow. And so Jesus in this moment withdraws. And what makes me a little bit nervous about um, these moments is I see Jesus telling us or promise in scripture that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. 
As he promises in scripture of all that Jesus stands to do, even Jesus on earth doesn't really leave or abandon people, right? He lets the rich young ruler walk away. That guy walks away on his own. Jesus doesn't abandon him. Um, there's even a moment where he goes to his hometown and, and they think that he's blasphemed, so they're gonna throw him off the edge of a cliff. They're gonna throw him off the edge of a cliff and he doesn't run from them. He actually walks through them. He walks through them to escape this moment. But in this moment, when they try to force Jesus to be something he's not supposed to be in this moment, they try to mold him to be what they want him to be, not what he's called to be, he actually bounces on them. Like he leaves, he's gone. That's when he, I don't know if I can say that he forsook them, but like they forsook Jesus. They abandoned Jesus and that's when Jesus walks away. Like the idea that maybe the moment that we try to mold Jesus into what we want him to be, rather than to follow him for who he is, sounds pretty dangerous in this context. It sounds dangerous in our lives if, if Jesus always looks like us, he always agrees with us. I mean, he always agrees with my politics. I don't know about yours. He's like, I don't, know, I don't understand why everybody else is getting it wrong. They're missing Jesus because everything that I believe politically is correct. He always lets me spend money how I want to spend it, right? Is, that, is it just me? I guess you guys are better than me. Jesus just lets me spend my money however I want. Well, on whatever I want, I don't have to be a good steward of what he's given me. Um, and believe it or not, Jesus always agrees with me whenever I'm arguing with my spouse. I'm always right. It's always her that needs to apologize because I'm clearly right because Jesus agrees with me, right? Those are dangerous ideas where Jesus always just ends up looking like us. And now we're forcing him into a box where we're trying to make him something that he's not, right? We can all be multiple things at the same time. Don't get me wrong, all right? Your, your spouse, hopefully, is also your friend. Your spouse is also maybe a, a mother or a father to your kids. You, you're, you're a lot of things. You're a coworker. You're a boss. You're a lot of things all at one time, but they can't contradict each other, right? They can't be the opposite. Jesus can be your friend because he, he, he actually tells us we're going to be friends, but, but that doesn't mean that as your friend, it supersedes his role as your king, Right? He's your friend because he loves you and he tells you the, the, the intricacies of the kingdom, but ultimately he's still our king. Ultimately, the kingship trumps the friendship. And he tells us what to do and we can't make him do what we want him to do. He's not, he's not this special magic genie where we can say the right prayer and we get everything we want how we want it. But he's really the, our king where we choose to follow him, not what he provides. And he's providing in this moment bread and they want the bread, not the king. And there's this, uh, there's, my favorite author is uh, C.S. Lewis. He writes some really cool theological works, but many of you know him from a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. In The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, it sets up this uh, fictional world where uh, God is represented by a lion named Aslan. Aslan is, 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 the, is Jesus. Aslan is God. And there's all these other talking animals that do all this kind of cool stuff. And these kids go on adventures there. And it's a really, really cool series. And it does one of the best job, if not the best job outside of scripture, giving us the heartbeat of God. And in the story, um, they're looking for Aslan to come back at different time, during different adventures, during different uh, points of danger. And they talk about Aslan and people are like, oh, no, no, let's go to Aslan. He's really good. No, no, he's good. Um, but then they'll explain like, but wait just a minute. When you meet Aslan, when you meet the lion, when you meet the illustration of God, he's not a tame lion, right? So, so, so let's just be really careful when you meet him. He's not a tame lion. And then they'll be in the middle of adventure and like, no, but he'll, he'll do this for us and he'll fix this for us. Like, whoa, whoa, wait, he's not a safe lion. Like, be careful how you speak and what you're ready to do when you meet him because he's not a tame lion and he's not a safe lion. And what I would say about our God and what I'd say about following Jesus is he's not tame. He's not a tame lion. 
Now, he may be emotionally, spiritually safe, but physically, he's not a safe lion. I, I don't like spoiler alert. None of us make it out of this alive. None of us make it out of this alive. He's, he, it, it's not about our safety, our physical safety, ultimately. Like he has a call on our life and he's not a tame lion. He's not a safe lion. He is calling us to do something. He's drawing us to something more. And we have to wrestle through the question of whether or not we are following him or following what he provides. See, because the crowd likes the bread and wants more of the bread, but they don't actually want him. And many of us, our draw to faith, and it's a healthy beginning stage, our draw to faith was the bread that was provided. The miracle, the good things, the, the beauty of who he was, his, his kindness leads us to repentance. That was the beginning stages of what it looked like to follow him. And it's okay that the bread led you to him because it's like he's leading a bread trail in our lives to give us a little bit at a time so that we can look up and go, oh, this is what you're leading me to. You were leading me to this moment so that I could see you and not stay distracted by the bread and always hope for the next bit of bread, a little bit of morsel, just one more thing. But like, no, it's you. Ultimately, the steps of, of his goodness and his mercy is about getting to him. And so the crowd follows the bread. Uh, what takes place is uh, Jesus uh, goes to the other side. He goes to uh, off by himself on the mountainside. His disciples get on the boat and go and, uh, goes, head across the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're heading from one side to the other side to Capernaum. And uh, the, the map basically shows it being about six or seven miles. You kind of map it. It's about six or seven miles. And they go about three or four miles and Jesus shows up walking on water. This is one of the moments that we show Jesus walking on water. And uh, they're like, hey, is it you? He gets on the boat. And this is a moment in John where it looks like Jesus teleports. Okay, this is, this is just random data points. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to tell you about it. I don't really know how to dive into this, well, how to apply it. All I know is this is one of two moments in scripture where it seems like Jesus teleports because they go three or four miles and then Jesus gets in the boat and all of a sudden they're at their destination. I don't know what that means. And maybe we can, maybe he'll let us teleport. Maybe it's a miracle you can pray for. If you're really running late, just Jesus teleport me. Just teleport me past this red light. Teleport. I don't know how to apply that. I just think it's kind of cool from a sci-fi perspective. Maybe we can time travel too. If we can teleport, then we should be able to time travel. Let's just do all kinds of cool stuff and believe God for it. But he gets to the other side and the crowd follows. The, the crowd follows his disciples. They all get on a boat and walk around. They all get to the other side to get to him. Um, and then he starts teaching. This crowd that saw the bread, he starts teaching them in the synagogue in, in Capernaum. And he starts talking to them about the moment that this happened. He's like, you guys are looking for bread. He's like, you remember when, when Israel was in the desert and God provided manna? That's what he starts telling them about. And they're like, oh yeah, because they're all, that's a really significant part of their history. When they were in the desert, they were gonna starve and God provided manna. God provided bread for them in the desert when they had nothing, it showed up, it was miraculous. And they're like, oh yeah, we remember that. And he's like, no, no, I've got an eternal bread that I wanna give you. And they're like, cool, let's, let, we would love to have that. That's what we're here for. We're here to get that bread, right? This is, all, we're ready. We're ready for whatever you got, let's do this. And then he explains, I'm the bread. I, I, I'm actually the bread. All of what you saw that, that God provided was to point you to me. The bread that I provided you on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that was about you seeing me. And they, they, he starts to have a conversation about, I'm the bread. And so if you want to partake of, of, of this eternal life and this eternal bread, you're going to have to eat me. It starts getting weird, right? We know, we know with our 2,000 years in the future lens, some, some, some imagery that takes place for communion, but that's not what they're hearing. They're hearing like, I mean, they're hearing eating flesh. 
That's not a, that's, this is who we follow, Jesus, the not safe, not tame lion who talks about eating his flesh. And then he goes even a level deeper. He's like, and, and also you're gonna have to drink my blood. This is what it's gonna take. And for us, we know like the illustration, the, the imagery, the metaphor, we get it. But for them, they're like, nah, I don't, and that's too far. They know it's too far because like, because the scriptures tell them. Now here's what happens when, they, when he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In John chapter six, verse 66, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Not his followers, not just random people, many of his disciples, many of the ones who were really committed to him bounced. Not the 12 he picked, it wasn't one of the 12, but many of the ones who had decided that they were gonna follow him, he was gonna be their rabbi, those are the ones that are disciples, and they bounced. They bounced because like your teaching got too weird. And what's interesting about this moment is that when they leave, when they leave Jesus behind, they're, they're, they're actually right in what they're upset about. They're actually right in, this, in the sense that all of them knew from their Old Testament scriptures, from their main holy scriptures, all of them knew we don't drink blood, right? We're not cannibals. This is not what we do. We're out. And, and they're technically right. Like if you've ever heard of kosher food, you know that there, there's a very specific routine that you have to have done to your food. And one of them is how you get the blood out, how you kill the animal and how you drain the blood. It's very specific for it to be kosher food. And that's part of it. And they're like, not only do we not drink blood, we're very specific on our meats, what meat we can eat and how much blood is drained because life is in the blood. So once you start talking crazy about drinking blood, we know you don't align with our version of theology and our version of what God is supposed to be. And so they, they jump ship. And it's strange because they're right. They're right about their beliefs. They're technically right about what he's saying being wrong. And so they leave. And so if we decide that we're going to follow the bread, like leading to him and we, we get to him and we see him, we've got to make, we really got to ask the question that these uh, disciples weren't willing to ask. Like, can I follow Jesus when he disagrees with me? Can I follow Jesus whenever he doesn't fit my logic? Can I follow Jesus whenever the plans he has for my life don't align for what I think the plans should be? Can I follow Jesus when I'm wrong? Am I okay being wrong? Am I okay looking at Jesus and going, I mean, I, I like this or I, I kind of like this idea of you, but, but you're telling me things that just don't fit. Or there are things in scripture that we don't like, that we want to blot out, we want to ignore and pretend they don't exist because we want to live however we want to live. And the question is, is he your king or not? You can't force him to be king. You can't force him to fit into your box. Is he your king? Because if he's your king, then the, then the scriptures, the way I read it, should be the word of God to us. And that's what we follow even when we disagree. There are things in scripture that don't make sense to me, that I don't, I don't like. I wish I, could, I wish I could erase them. I'm like, no, it'd be easier if you did it this way, God. But I don't get to do that. I don't get to look at scripture and tell it what to say. I don't get to look at scripture and have it dictate and fit into my narrow view of what the world should be and how God should respond. I'm either following him as my king or, or I'm, I'm trying to mold him to be something else, but he's not a tame lion. He's not a safe lion. And, and look, all of us should be getting to the place, and, and I get this is maybe a little bit more difficult to, to grasp and really act out because it's a really high standard. And so none of us are going to be perfect. None of us are going to wake up tomorrow and be like, I like everything in scripture and I'm just going to crush it. I'm just going to do everything Jesus tells me to do because it's so easy. He's not tame. He's not safe. And I'm fine with that. For most of us, we're just going to get a little better than we were yesterday. 
For most of us, we're going to decide that he's our king and recognize that we have flaws and mistakes and we, and we mess up a lot, but we're going to get a little better. We're, we're going to choose to follow him just a little closer. We're going to choose to submit to one more area of our life, submit that to him, even when it's difficult. We're going to choose every single day to get a little bit more submitted to the king of kings. When it doesn't feel good, when it's uncomfortable, when our emotions don't line up, we're not going to be perfect, but we can get better. We, we had the bread that led us to the bread maker. And then when we trust him with our life, we're going to get a little better each day to trust him because we found out he is who he says he is. And so then Jesus, after these verses, now, ironically, it's John 6, 6, 6, and I like try to add some more verses to it, but it didn't really fit the context. And it's also interesting that they leave him Elm verse 6, 6. I don't know what to do with that. That's just random, just ADD moment for me. Uh, and so then we go to verse 67. And here's how Jesus responds. He looks at his other 12. Then Jesus said to the 12, his 12 disciples, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Right? Like, I don't think Peter is like, I agree with you. I'm drinking blood. I'm going to be a cannibal now. I'm totally with you. I think Peter is saying like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know which direction you're taking us. All I know is what I've seen is that you're good. All I know is that you have the words of eternal life. So I will follow you and figure out this mystery as we go. Right? All I know is that you're my king enough. You, I know that you're the Messiah so I can trust you enough to follow you even when I don't understand because you have the words of eternal life. I don't understand it perfectly. You see throughout scripture, Peter doesn't get it. Peter misses it over and over and over and over again. Like Peter is the quintessential disciple to miss it. And he's like, but I don't have anywhere else to go. Like there's, it's, it's not that I follow you because I got nothing else. I follow you because I saw that you had the words of eternal life. So even when I don't understand, I'll trust you. I, I, the bread led me to you. Your words of eternal life led me to you. And then I saw the Messiah. Then I saw my King and I chose to submit to you. Even when I'm confused, where else am I going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. They, they see him. And they follow him, right? So there's like this progression for us. And uh, you may be in different stages. There's this progression where there's little morsels like Rapunzel, drops of bread in our life that lead us to him. And hopefully at some point that leads us to see him, right? You got the good stuff in life and you want the good things. You start to follow Jesus, maybe just because he provides good things. And then you get to see him. And then you go, I follow you, whether you're safe or whether you're tame or whether I'm comfortable, because I trust that you're good. I trust that you have eternal life in your hands. I trust that your words are true. I trust you, not just the bread anymore, right? That's the, that's the stages of our walk and following him. And the disciples get to that place where they're like, okay, no, no, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm past the bread stage. I'm, I'm, I'm past just being here for what you provide. I'm here for you. And that, that's a progression in our life and our following Jesus. It's like we go to bread, then we go to the bread maker. Then we go to the ultimate manna. Then we go to the one who we can trust with our life. And we go, all right, I trust you now. And some of you uh, maybe don't recognize it, but you have these morsels in your life. Maybe you're in the wrestle and in the question uh, of, of God and whether he's real and whether he's worth following and all of these things. And, and there's morsels, there's drops in your life of God trying to leave you a breadcrumb trail. To say, come, come find me. Come see me. There's a rabbi who has a quote that kind of speaks to this. His name is Rabbi uh, Abraham Heschel. It says, in every man's life, there are moments when there is a lifting of the veil at the horizon of the known. 
opening a sight of the eternal. Each of us has at least once experienced the momentous reality of God, but such experiences are rare events. To some people, they are like shooting stars, passing and unremembered. In others, they kindle a light that is never quenched. All of us have had, what he's saying is all of us have had moments in our life. All of us have had moments in our life where it's like, oh, I see something different. Like I see the divine, I see the miraculous, I see the bread. All of us have had those moments. And, and he says that those moments either just were a fleeting moment. They were just like, a, oh, I remember that. Oh yeah, kind of. I, I remember that one time was really special. Someone was unique. And we forget about them like shooting stars. And for some of us, they're moments that we can't let go of. Some of us, there are moments that we, we, we realize something was out there that was different, that was bigger, that was more significant. There was a call on our life that was more significant and we can't let go of that moment. And for what I, for, as a word of encouragement, if you have forgotten that moment or you think you don't have the moment, just look back. And I think you can rekindle that shooting star that was supposed to spark a light in you. I think you rekindle that, that moment if you think back to some of the moments in your life that God did something, the divine was revealed to you. You saw something, you experienced something that logic does not contain anymore. And you know God is dropping you a breadcrumb bread to point you to him. Well, I don't know what it was for you. Maybe it was the, the moment you fell in love and you realized this is not, this is more than human. This doesn't make sense. Evolution doesn't answer this. This connection is different. Maybe it was the moment your kid was born. And you realize this is, not, this is not just an evolutionary connection to make this kid survive. There's something divine in this moment. There's something that God is pointing me to. It could have been a long drive for you where you felt something in that car. Maybe it was quiet. Maybe the music hit just right. And you felt something that transcended the moment. That was bigger than the moment. It was a walk for, through the woods. It was, it was staring up at the stars. And you realized there is more to this. And it sparked something in you. And you decided today, even maybe as you look back, to cling back to it and to, to add logs to the fire so that, it can, so that you can keep seeking and seek, keep questioning. What is it? What does it mean? What do I do with it? What do I, what do, I do with this wrestle, these breadcrumbs that are pointing me to something, that, the vacancy that's in my heart? What are these things that are pointing me to something missing? Why is it that I long for something that can't be satisfied on this earth? Why is it that this is happening? Why does this exist? There were so many moments for me. One was a long car ride and a church bus by myself. And I felt God tell me to stay when I wanted to go. There were moments where in life that I prayed for the thing and the thing happened. And it was so divine and so shockingly illogical that I can't let it go. No matter what other things point away from the bread, there was still that moment that convinces me there's something. Last week I talked about um, my own wrestle with, with, with religion and whether or not I just got lucky. And I talked a little bit about how I would probably uh, lean towards agnosticism. This idea that um, there could be a God, you just can't know it. Might be just out of my own motives to, to just want to do whatever I wanted to do. It'd be convenient for me to be agnostic. And I had a friend of mine who actually attends the church and is an agnostic. And he reached out and he was like, hey, that's, that seems a little simplistic, don't you think, for like the average agnostic. I was like, oh, oh yeah, no, no, I was talking about me. I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> I was talking about my motives. My motives would have been impure. But I have an immense amount of respect for some of you who are still chasing the breadcrumbs. 
who are still wrestling, who still have logic and question and doubts and things that you're wondering about, and you call yourself an atheist or an agnostic, or, or you're just not sure and you're still seeking. No, no, no. I, I have an immense amount of respect when you still are looking, when, when things aren't lining up for you yet. When, it, when, when you have these bits and these morsels of, of the divine that have been breadcrumbs to point you to God, but you then have these other moments that seem to point you away from him, and you're wrestling, and you're praying, and you're questioning, and you're still showing up to life, and you're still showing up to church, or you're still showing up to ask the questions. I've got an immense amount of respect. And my, my thing is that it matters that you ask those questions. And I'm proud of you if you're in that boat to ask those questions. Because I think if his word is true, he says, if you seek, you will find. And what I think if you seek the breadcrumbs and you see the breadcrumbs, you start to recognize that it was him pointing you back to him. It was him pointing you to not just get more of the divine, but get the one who is divine. It was not for you to just get more bread in your life and get more joyful moments or get more aha moments when you see the stars, but it was to meet the one who is the aha moment. It was to meet him and be okay following him without any of the moments left. That you don't get any more bread, you just know that you trust the one who is the bread. That you don't need the extra moments to satisfy your soul because he satisfied your soul. And that's what we find out is that as we follow him, we start to trust him with our life. And it becomes about him. It becomes about him. Like our life becomes about him. And what gets unhealthy, if we're followers of Jesus, what gets unhealthy is if, that we, if we choose to follow him and we say we follow him, but we really just want the bread. We really just want he, what he does for us. It gets really unhealthy and the church can get that way, right? We as a church could get that way. If we just start making church about us, it gets really unhealthy and really gross. I don't know if you noticed it. If it's got to be about my, the carpet that I want at the church or the color of paint I want at the church or the style of music I want at the church or the way the person preaches or if his hair's not long or short, I got to have it a certain way. It's got to fit what I want for church. But that's not, I don't think that's what following him was about. I thought following him was about him and about what he did through us and pointing more people to him. That's why we say this as a core value, that we are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. The church does not exist for us, but we are the church and we exist for the world. So it's not really about what I want. It's not really about what even half of you want. It's about what the person who comes in would have the best chance to get to see him because we're about him. We connect for him. And for many people, we use these moments with Jesus uh, of like, well, that's why the church doesn't grow. That's why this thing doesn't happen because we're just speaking the truth. No, no, Jesus dispersed the crowd, but he can't keep them away. Like Jesus dispersed the crowd in this moment with his teaching. They disperse and yet they show right back up. You see moment after moment after moment in John where more crowds keep showing up because what I believe is what Jesus says is that if he is lifted up, he'll draw people to him. It's really hard to keep people away from the goodness and the mercy of God. It's really hard to keep people away. If you're pointing people to the Jesus who forgives, you're pointing people to the Jesus who heals, you're pointing people to the Jesus who is good, maybe not tame, maybe not safe, but he is good. It's hard to keep people away from wanting more of him. And if we'll point to him, people want more of him. Even if he uses the breadcrumbs of our kindness and our goodness and our mercy to them to get them to him. That's what we're about. That's what I pray you become about and that you find out you follow him, not what he provides. You follow the bread maker, not just the bread. At some point in our stage of discipleship, we followed the bread, we got to him, and now we just follow him. And then we take one more step right? It's breadcrumbs led me to him. I see you. I follow you. And now we go like the young boy. We go, okay, well, what I have is yours then. 
If you're good and I can trust you with my life, whatever's in my hands is yours. Whatever's in my hands is yours. And some of you are like, well, yeah, that's, that's great, but I don't really have anything. Like I'll show up to church, but I don't really have a gift to offer. I don't really have much to offer. Um, like good, good for you. You can get up there and, and, and preach and do all those things. Good for these people that can sing and do cool stuff. But like, I'll, I'll just be here and not, and just show up because I don't really have much to offer. And the thing is in our discipleship, as he takes us from stage to stage, he doesn't ask us to have it all together. He doesn't ask us to have it perfect. He actually doesn't need you to have gifts based on what the world's standards of gifts are. He just asks you to be faithful. He just asks you to trust him with what's in your hand. If you get there, right? If you get to the stage of like, all right, I believe he is who he says. He is the bread pointing me to the bread maker and I trust him with my whole life. And you get to that stage and you believe he doesn't need you to be qualified. He just needs you to be called. And he called you. He just spoke to you and said, hey, I've got more for you to do. Don't sit there and just act like uh, you don't have anything left to do in life, that you don't have any gift to offer. Just trust me with whatever you've given. If it's a lot or a little, just trust me and God will use it. Because the whole point, the whole chapter six of John kicks off because somebody said, I don't really have much, but what I have you can, you can take. I don't really have that much, but what's in my hands? Here's what happens in verse nine. This kicks off all of the miracle was one young guy. It says, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are these among so many? What are they among so many? Five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? What, 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 are, they, what are we gonna do with this kid's lunch? What are we gonna do with five barley loaves and two fish when there's 5,000 men here? How is this gonna matter to anything? God's like, it's not the size of the gift that matters to me, it's that you offer it. It's that you trust me with your life, that you get to a stage of your discipleship where you go, bread, bread maker, take what I have. I'll give you my gift. And what God can do with one person is feed 5,000. What can God do with you, with your gift? I don't, I don't care how big, God didn't ask you to assess it. God didn't ask you like, oh no, well, it's only worth like five bucks. I mean, this dude out of 5,000 people, it could have had the high value. I don't know if you understand supply and demand, but a bunch of 5,000 hungry people and you got the only food around, that's worth a lot of money now. But he didn't have to assess what it was worth. He just had to put it into the king's hands. He just had to trust Jesus with, he didn't have to assess the value. He could have, and he could have made a lot of money off of his lunch, but instead he trusted with God. Whether it was small or big in his hands, when he trusted to God, God did miracles with it. And for some of you, you're waiting on qualification. You're waiting on getting all the sin out of your life to be used by God. You're waiting on to have it all perfect. Or once I get to this stage, then I'll follow God. The only stage you need to get to is follow the breadcrumbs. They lead to the bread maker. And you actually believe he's good. You actually, actually believe that you can trust him. You don't need anything else. You don't need to be perfect. You don't even have it all together. You just have to be faithful. Just here you go. This is what I got. Take it. Every single one of you, your voice, your call, he's got something that he's placed in your hands. And when you trust him with it, he'll do miracles. I looked up a guy this week who gave God something. Um, his name is uh, Albert McMakin. Albert McMakin, uh, I doubt many of you have heard his name because he's not a significant historical character. Uh, when he was 24, year old, 24 years old, he was a farmhand. And what he had was enthusiasm. He loved Jesus. That was it. That's all he had. I don't know what happens to him after this moment, but he loves Jesus enough to invite one of his coworkers. Hey, man, there's a revival. You should go. And he's like, no, nah, I don't, I'm not really into that stuff. I don't want to do it. And he finally convinces him, like has to win him over to convince him. 
And Albert was faithful to convince him to get there. And at that revival, that man was converted. And that man is Billy Graham and won thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to come and follow Jesus. All because one man was faithful with five loaves and two fish. I don't know. I don't even know. I don't know if history tells us what happens to Albert. What I do know is that Albert was faithful with what was in his hands and God did miracles with it. What does it look like to be faithful with your hands? To just say, God, I don't know, but I can invite. I don't know God, but I can serve. I don't know God, but I can give. I don't know God, but what have you called me to do next? And I'll trust that you will do miracles if I'll be faithful. Because that's what he does over and over and over again in scripture. Even with your weaknesses, he says, I'm made perfect through your weakness. You're like, oh, I can't give God that. No, no, you give God that too. The thing that you're struggling with, the thing you're embarrassed by, no, God will use that too. That's how God works. He takes the broken, he takes the, the struggling, and he uses them to bring restoration, forgiveness, and miracles. And so today, my, my real challenge is, is, are you at the stage where it's time to just trust God? You got something in your life that's in your hands and you've been holding on to it because you didn't think it had value. You've been holding on to it because you didn't think you could use it and it's just time to go, all right, God, it's yours. Do miracles. It's yours. You have my life. You have me. I've gotten from the breadcrumb stage. I believe you're good. And now I just want you to use me. I just want you to do something with my life. All I am is five loaves and two fish. God, use me. Let's pray. We're so glad you joined us for today's message. Our prayer is that God got the message you needed most today. If you're still here joining us and you're looking for an opportunity to connect to the Brick Church through giving, you can do that by texting the word BRICK to 45888. That's the word BRICK to 45888. The first time you do that, it's going to send you a link, give you the opportunity to connect that number to a credit card, debit card, or bank account. And as you connect with us and we partner together to reach people, we pray that God blesses you in your giving.